Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Well, here we go. Another week. Maybe this is the week the Pac-12 will decide what they are doing. A couple of good reports I read this weekend, um, trying to get up to speed on what's going to happen and where it might go and when it might go there. San Jose Mercury News, uh, read a little bit in the Oregonian. And 24-7 Sports had a really interesting piece. And... You know, it comes down to when do they restart? What's the situation on each campus? Uh, 24-7 reporting that it's Stanford who's really slowing things down, saying, you said we weren't going to play. We sent all our kids home. All of our students are online, and our football players are not pro athletes, and we're not going to treat them different than students, so we shouldn't be bringing them back to school until we bring all the students back. And that argument is apparently, according to 24-7 Sports, carrying a little bit of weight with UCLA and Cal, who see themselves very academic. Not Ivy League, obviously. They're on the wrong coast. But, uh, you know, kind of in that tradition, in that vein. And then you got schools that are ready to go. And I think depending on where you are, Oregon, USC, Utah, um, ASU, uh, probably in that group to different degrees. I don't know that for sure, but I think based on how they're acting, PK was talking on TV last night that uh, you know ASU is going to have helmets on this week, and they haven't had that since March, so that sounds a little more aggressive. Um, and there's been lots reported on this. You know, Washington, Utah, Washington, Washington State, Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, and Colorado. Those six schools have been able to do more than the other six schools because of the local conditions. So. They're ready to play. Now, is the date going to be November 7? Is it going to be October 31? Is it going to be 10 or 11 schools playing and not all 12? I suspect in the end it'll be all 12 that uh, Stanford won't be happy about it, but they'll go along with it. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. You know, it's, I don't have firsthand knowledge on this. Uh, it does seem the conferences feel like they need to all do it together. They can't agree to disagree. The Big Ten's had a couple chances, and they haven't. There's plenty of reporting out there that says Rutgers doesn't really want to play football. You know, now New Jersey's had it worse than a lot of states, and Rutgers football isn't very good. So the combination of the two. Uh, Nebraska, on the other hand, looked like they were ready to go as an independent when the Big Ten wasn't playing. So, but it, it seemed really important that all 14 do the same thing at the same time, which i got to admit I don't exactly get. I mean, this season is so weird. You know, there's nothing normal about this season. I mean, for starters, the SEC, the league that for a long time only played six conference games and now can barely bring itself to play eight and is having no part of nine, even though the Big Ten and the Pac-12 and the Big 12 are all playing nine. No, 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 we play eight, we can't play nine. Now all of a sudden they can play ten and then give up all their games with the Citadel. The ACC was really sure the SEC wanted to play those in-state rivalry games they have, Georgia-Georgia Tech, Florida-Florida State, South Carolina-Clemson, Kentucky-Louisville. Nope. So after the ACC goes out there and says, oh, it'll be 10 plus one, 10 conference games, everybody's, everybody's all over the map here. There's no centralized leadership. To be fair, people have different circumstances in different states, right? You got different politics, you got different uh, health outcomes. You know, it's running really hot in this state now, but not over here. And then later on, the infection rate goes up in this state, but it went down in that state over there. <laughs> I don't know how basketball has one meeting and one announcement says, "Yep, yeah, we're starting on Thanksgiving weekend." 
November 25, 24, whatever it is. Circle it, people. Oh, okay. And everyone just goes along with it. Meanwhile, over here in football, we got 10 conferences with 10 different plans. We got four that aren't playing, but three look like they're ready to come back and play, but one may not come back. We got two conferences. Uh, two of the Power Five will play non-conference games, but just one, not two. Meanwhile, the SEC won't play any. But they'll play 10 conference games, which they've never wanted any part of. What a weird year. I think um, it'll be interesting to see the Pac-12. I think the wiggle room comes down to this. For the people who want to hold till November 7th, will they let the conference, other conference schools, play non-conference games on Halloween? You know, and, and obviously with the Mountain West, I think we might hear something this week from the Mountain West. That seems to be where they're trending. You know, could there be some non-conference games there? Or... Does the Pac-12 start some games on the 31st and some on the 7th? Maybe the teams on the 31st have a bye in the middle of the season and then have a place to move games if they have to get canceled. Uh, We're seeing that locally with some high schools. Uh, Skyline and Brighton are both undefeated. They're supposed to play Friday night. But Skyline's gone over the 15 cases. They've had four. The Deseret News is reporting that they've had four cases in a football class. And the district is stepping in and stopping games for two weeks. And Olympus has had 13 cases. They're only a couple away. Now, over in the Canyons district, uh, you know, Brighton and Corner Canyon seem to be, you know, going over the limit. But they're making exceptions and still playing. I'm not predicting what's happening next, people. I think the Utes are going to be playing on Halloween weekend. That seems where this is going. Who they'll be playing, will it be conference or non-conference? I suspect it'll be a conference game, but deep down, who really knows? It's a crazy year. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, enough of the speculation on the college football and all that. What happened in the NFL? I think there's a lot going on there. NBA playoffs, U.S. Open. We will get to all of that coming up. Stay with us. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280 The Zone and the Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Well, how about that for a weekend full of sports? NFL, NBA, U.S. Open. College football really doesn't do it for me. There are like 20 games, seven games canceled, 20 games played. The BYU game was canceled, but hardly a novelty. I mean, you got to give it to Baylor and Houston. They had two games canceled in the same week. Both their opponents canceled. So they scheduled each other, and then Baylor had an outbreak, and they never played. Welcome to 2020. I don't know what to tell you. As far as the uh, NFL football, you know, the primetime game was really good, and I wonder, uh, I wonder how many people saw it. You know, the Emmys are on, and that's going to pull some people away, and the NBA had a really good playoff game going. I don't know how much you saw of the Lakers and the Nuggets, but a great duel down the stretch. Jokic had it going. Anthony Davis had it going. Davis had the last 10 points for the Lakers. Jokic had the last 12 for the Nuggets over the last five minutes. He was just great. You know, you're supposed to have 
a go-to move, right? And you'll hear ex-coaches turn broadcasters say that. you got to have a go-to move. You can really count on in the clutch. I guess Jokic's go-to move is that little baby hook that he flipped in for the go-ahead hoop. He had two go-ahead hoops. But when you look at the 12 points he scored in the last five minutes, he scored so many different ways. He scored at the free throw line. He scored off the three-point line. He had a three-pointer. He had a mid-range shot. He had a tip-in, putting back a miss, and he had the baby hook at the end. I mean, he scored so many different ways. He doesn't have just one go-to move. I mean, I suppose the hook's the most reliable, but he'll strike fear into you doing any one of those things. It was really impressive. He had a 30-point game. It was really impressive. And uh, Jamal Murray was crazy. I got I to gotta go look it up. I think he was like plus 16 and plus minus, and he's out four minutes, and they go minus 18. Yeah, I think they're counting on him. Uh, you know, at the other end of the floor, and I did see some of this on Twitter, you know, uh, LeBron... He's not the MVP. He was gravy training. Oh, stop at the whole macho. You got to win, and the stars got to do it all. It's team game. The goal is to win the game. And LeBron, to his credit, has always played that way. He was here when he was young. Maybe it was his third year in the league, second, third, fourth year in the league, somewhere in there. It was really early on. And um, the Jazz were up. I don't remember if they were up by a point or two, but Cleveland was scoring in front of the Jazz bench. And LeBron got the ball kind of off the elbow on the left side, I think, and got doubled and gave it up. I forget who his teammate was he gave it to, but the guy missed the shot. And the Jazz won the game. And afterwards, LeBron has got to learn as a star that he's got to take that shot. He's, and he's like, nope, I was doubled. I got to make the right basketball play. Uh, so he's, he's always been like that. And that's just one example of many. Um, so I think he's fine. Hey, if AD's got a rolling, get the ball to AD. You know, LeBron, even as a decoy, is a killer. You know, I mean, on the last play of the game, there's we're switching everything. Okay, switching everything means switching every screen. It doesn't mean switch when there's no screen. I mean, AD literally ran what five, six, seven feet away from LeBron. It wasn't even close. The only thing you would do there is if you're in a true zone, Plumlee could bump a guy out on him, but. The NBA doesn't really play. That's more something you learn junior jazz or in high school, you know, maybe in college. But it's just that gives shooters too much space. You can't you can't play that zone and bump guys out in the NBA. It doesn't, you know, that might work in a high school game. But no, he was supposed to plumbing. He's got to stay with him. He's got to stay with AD. He's got the size. He's got the length. Maybe he can bother it. It was a heck of a play by Jokic to – he was defending the inbound, jumping up and down, swinging the arms around, all that. And then he turns and runs out there and tries to challenge the shot. But credit to, credit to Anthony Davis. He shouldn't have been that open. But if you are that open, stick the shot. And he did. He drained it. So the Lakers are up 2-0, which for most people would be a big problem. But for the Nuggets, who've been down 3-1, you know, as long as they get one of the next two, they will just look at a familiar script, right? Probably doesn't work that way. But, you know, it would be great if it did. Uh, But a lot of you didn't see that game and didn't see the dramatic final sequences there um, because you were watching the – um, Sunday night game, which was Seattle and New England, which turned out to be a really good game. 35-30, Seattle wins. Cam Newton has huge stats and moves his team up and down the field and had him right down there at the goal line to win it. And a little less than imaginative play calling, but Bill Belichick really didn't want to be quizzed on that after the game, did he? Um, and meanwhile, Russell Wilson just... <laughs> Just really, really good. I mean, five touchdown passes to five different receivers. And, man, some of them, they just barely squeezed in there in the end zone. 
Good throws, receivers tiptoeing down the sideline. It was really good. Good game. Seattle wins. You just wonder, are they back? Are they in the mix again in the NFC? Kind of looks like it. Uh, the, you know, Keep it in the West, right? The Niners and Rams have gone the last two years. And the Niners, that was a lot of injuries. I mean, there were big injuries all over the league. Uh, Broncos losing their quarterback. Giants losing their star running back. Saquon Barkley probably in ACL. Didn't really look like anything happened on that play. Nothing but nothing spectacular. It's not like his foot stuck in the ground or the knee hyperextended the wrong way. Those are sure signs you can see stuff happening. It just, But he was in a lot of pain, and they helped him off, and the Giants think it's an ACL. Uh, the Niners had four or five guys leave the game, and the worst is probably Bosa. They think that that's an ACL. Um, they, uh, <laughs> the Niners score on their first play. Just a little pitch toss play. Literally the first play of the game, and it goes 80 yards for a touchdown. Oh, man. Uh, but they lose their running back, although maybe not too bad. They lose their quarterback, high ankle sprain. Garoppolo came back, went to the locker room. I don't know if he got it shot up or taped up or both. Uh, came in and took a more touchdown passes, and they took him out. Uh, it didn't matter. They blitzed the Jets. That was ridiculously easy. Um, not a big deal. Um, a couple of the other games that jumped out at me, um, the Steelers, Roethlisberger, really wondered, you know, surgically repaired elbow, how is he going to do? And he just looks like Roethlisberger. It looks like nothing happened. The arm is fine. He's flinging long touchdown passes. They beat the Broncos, so they're 2-0, and the Broncos are 0-2. Um, yeah, Pittsburgh's got it going. They, did, they, look, they look good. James Conner had a ton of yards. I tell you, he had a huge game. So I think the Ravens, and effortless 2-0, I didn't see that game, uh, but they're 2-0 again. They've won a bunch of regular season games. You know, they were the one seed last year. Their, their deal is the playoffs. I figure the Ravens are going to be there, but, you know, they've been one and done two years in a row, and last year is the one seed. But they look like they're going to roll. They're 2-0. The Chiefs are 2-0. The Steelers are 2-0. The Ravens are 2-0. Anybody else in the AFC who's good, who can add to that mix, great. But I'm really happy if those are the three top teams in the AFC because that should be a couple of great playoff games. And maybe somebody else can join them. You know, and injuries may derail somebody. It's always a risk. And we certainly saw that with the Niners having a, just a slew of injuries yesterday. The Broncos losing their quarterback. The Giants losing their star running back. I mean, there were a lot of injuries. Uh, and it could wreck anybody. But these three, you know, and Kansas City, they had their issues. The, the Chiefs and the Chargers playing in L.A. And uh, the, the, the Charger pass rush gave the Chiefs a lot of problems. Um, it gave them a lot of problems. But in the end, the Chiefs make enough plays to get to overtime and win the game. And they make them on offense. They threw like a 54-yard touchdown pass. And they make them special teams. Pressure field goal to tie the game up and get to OT. And then in OT, you got a 53-yarder for the win. You jump off sides, false start. It kills the play. But the 53-yard field goal is good. Now you're backed up five yards. It's a 58-yarder. And that's good, but the Chargers called timeout. So you got to do it again. And that 58-yarder is good. I don't know if you're old enough to remember a time when kickers missed 35- and 40-yard field goals. And, and fans would say stuff like, kickers, all they got to do is kick the ball. How come they can't get it right and do it every time? Money's gotten bigger. Specialists spend their whole life working at it. I think kickers are, are more athletic than they've been on the whole. Not every example is perfect, but largely. And they do make a shockingly high percentage of kicks that they didn't use to make. And now it's unbelievable. The distance, the difficulty, 
I think they probably ought to narrow the goalpost, to be honest with you. But, you know, that's a discussion for another day. So the Chiefs get out of there with a win. It was not pretty. It was not an electrifying, you know, uh, you know an electrifying performance. Um, but they're 2-0. and So, you know, they, they, they keep it going. Uh, man, Green Bay, are they going to sustain this? 42 points. They made the Lions look silly. Now, I know it's two division games. It's the Vikings and the Lions. But Green Bay's gotten off to some bad starts and they had to pull it together. They've looked really good two weeks in a row. And maybe it's just the Vikings and Lions, and maybe they'll get outside the division, and it'll, it'll be a different deal. But they looked really good. They were down 14-3 after a quarter, and then they were unstoppable. Un- the Packers were unstoppable. Speaking of unstoppable, the U.S. Open. That was DeChambeau really just ran away and hid. If you didn't watch a lot of it, I don't blame you. He took control of that thing kind of around the turn, started pulling away, and then just grinding out the pars, and everybody else is backing up, and that, that lead went up to six shots, and there it is. He, he wins in a walk. No drama at the end of that thing. So, uh, well, Bob Casper on later today to, to hash out the end of the U.S. Open. And uh, he really thought DeChambeau had no chance with that rough, that he couldn't control it, wouldn't know where it was going. And so none of us pick the U.S. Open champ. Three rounds of three, 0 for 9. Covered ourselves in glory there, didn't we? All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, David Locke uh, talking playoffs, but with an eye to the Jazz and what it means for next season. And we will do that next. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Time to talk a little NBA playoffs and a little jazz basketball with David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz. We had him on late in the show Friday, and obviously at that point we didn't know the Lakers would be up 2-0, and we didn't know Anthony Davis was going to hit that buzzer beater last night. But still, some of the theories of these matchups and how these four teams in the Commerce Finals match up, and Boston gave themselves a little life by winning game three, so they're down 2-1. Hayward's back, and he made some plays and helped them there, and they get the win. Um, how do these teams match up? How does this play out down the stretch? Uh, just some of the topics we hit with David Locke. Here he is on 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. David, good morning. Good morning. How are you, David? Good. How are you, PK? Uh, you know, I mean, whatever. Okay. <laughs> I'm fine. Sounds good. So as you watch the Nuggets go through the postseason and go through the Clippers and advance to the Western Finals, are you discouraged that the Jazz led an opportunity to get away and this could have been them? Or you are encouraged because, hey, yeah, one through seven, it sounds like a long way, but the fact is very little separates these top teams in the West. What do you think? I think probably both, don't you think? I mean, you certainly... I think it showed that the Clippers were not cohesive and were not particularly interested in being in the bubble. And when Lou Williams was quoted knowing the days right after the game, you can tell, you know, and that, you know, just the, the camaraderie difference between the Miami Heat and Denver Nuggets and, you know, seemingly Boston Celtics um, compared to the Los Angeles Clippers is pretty dramatic. 
um, just in the way they're portraying themselves. So I think it's clear that the Clippers were not as cohesive and were more vulnerable than maybe we had thought. Um, and so, you know, certainly having lost that um, lead in Game 5 or being that close to winning the series and not closing it out is, is awfully painful. It would be nice to be playing the Lakers tonight. Um but I also think we've seen, you know, what, one of the things we're seeing in the bubble that's really interesting to me is we're seeing leads just go away. Um, like this 15, 16-point swing is just not strange at all. And it's funny, as I talked to a bunch of players before they went to the bubble, that was the thing most of the players talked about, is they thought the runs would be very different because you didn't have crowds behind you either. Um, you know, and I don't think that – but I, I had taken the impression from the players that they thought the runs – runs in the game would be shorter because there was no crowd or at least that's the way I interpreted it not that it would be longer and more extended and that's what we're seeing is that without the crowd and without the environment when a team gets rolling a little bit it's really hard to slow them down um, and then from the other standpoint I would say you know I think Denver's encouraging we can build a roster the way Denver has we can't really build a roster the way LA has and we probably can't build a, way, a roster the way Miami has um but we can build a roster the way Denver has, and um, that should be encouraging to us. That that's that that's a model that's working. And you know, had it been the Lakers and the Clippers and the Heat, and then that's a little less encouraging. I'm interested in your thought about not being able to build a roster in terms of the Heat. Now, obviously, Jimmy Butler is the exception. Although when he came out, he was the 30th pick. When you look at the top, uh, let's go the top six guys from the Heat. You got Harrow. Hero was a 13th uh, pick. Out of bio, 14th. I just said Butler, 30. Uh, Crowder, 34. Uh, Drogic, 45th. And Duncan Robinson, undrafted. So why would you say they can't build it the way Miami has? So because Jimmy Butler was a marquee free agent that they okay. signed in the offseason. And, yeah. and I'm not thinking of him as a 30th pick. I'm thinking of him as you know he was one of the three or four marquee free agents. And we're just not going to get that player at that point. Um, and so that would be my thought on it. The other one with Miami, and while they have drafted Tyler here on Bam out of Bayou, that I do think you can look into that's really interesting, is Miami's done a really masterful job of the willingness to move draft picks to acquire talent and at the same time having enough draft picks that they still have young players. And that they've done that probably better than anyone in the league. So Goran Dragic, if I remember correctly, they gave up like three first-round draft picks for him. And then yet they still have Tyler Hero and Bam Adebayo, who are, you know, picks that they took. And I'd have to go back and see where they got all the, you know, how they reacquired picks or what they've done. But, you know, there there is a level... I mean, I remember being really thinking Miami had just like made one of the worst trades of all time when they traded for Goran Dragic because they gave up three first-round draft picks, and I think many of them were unprotected. It just seemed like an insane move, and yet, you know, it hasn't really come back to bite them at all. And I don't even know if those picks have turned into much of anything. So that's a good lesson of like you should be willing to move your pick, right? Like as much as you love your next draft pick and your next first-round pick, and it's so exciting that it's actually worth often worth making that move. Now, the flip side of that is that, you know, they also somehow have Bam Adebayo and Tyler Hero are are terrific pieces for them for the future. So as we watch guys like Jimmy Butler have a huge impact, making really, just really clutch shots, just such critical times, such big shots, 
we sit here and talk about how much the Jazz are going to improve based on how do you find this guy, how do you find that guy, but how much of it is, well, the Jazz will improve and go as far as uh, Donovan Mitchell does. If Donovan Mitchell is one of the top 15 players in the league, they'll get to one level. If he's one of the top five, six, seven players, they'll get to another level. And if he's one of the top two or three players in the league, then the championship's in play. How much of it does it really rest on the development of one or two of your best players, Mitchell and Gobert? Well, I think, and I think Rudy probably fits into this. You know, can Rudy find a way to score, get enough balance in that frame to be able to score over people? Like Rudy right now really just cannot score if there's someone in between him and the basket. Um, Adebayo hit like a little floater last night. You know, they're running basically the same pick-and-roll game the Jazz are running and torching the Celtics and doing, you know, Duncan Robinson was playing Boyan Bogdanovich last night. You didn't want to leave him in the corner because he's too good a shooter, and then Adebayo was able to roll to the basket on a smaller guy. Like, it was all the same stuff, but maybe one of the biggest plays was Adebayo hit a little four-foot floater over a defender, and that's the that's the piece that Rudy doesn't have yet is – can Rudy find a way if he if someone stays underneath him and he has someone between him and the basket that he can start to score um, that shot? And, you know that would be a huge developmental piece, and certainly Donovan as well. The one thing that has been um, again at, I think positive for the Jazz is that continuity seems to be important. Now, is continuity important because they're in the bubble and it's a unique circumstance, or is continuity important? I'm not entirely sure, but frankly, you know, I think there's something to be said that the the Warriors had a culture and they added Durant to it, and he actually screwed it up, but they were good enough with that culture that they kept winning for a while uh, with their championship. Um, That Cleveland team that won with LeBron had been together for – for a while, Tristan Thompson and all those those pieces kind of they they had been together, um, so it does seem as though continuity is is holding to have some importance. Um, and you know, there's probably exceptions to the rule, but that's that's a good sign as well. So the fact that you know Denver's winning and and Boston, frankly, has a continuity. You know, I think Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart have probably been on the same team for five years now, and. And Jason Tatum's been on it for three years. And so then they added Kemba Walker, which was just a cultural improvement from the flat earth crazy show that Kyrie Irving was for them last year. So, um, you know, I think that that's a, that's their, that's another positive lesson for the way the jazz and Dennis and, and Justin have built this roster. So I actually think that it won't be as far as Mitchell and Gobert, because it seems like they are, I don't want to use resigned, but they're planning to, have those guys together. If you listen to Dennis Lindsay in his Zoom call, he's very complimentary of uh, Gobert, and obviously Mitchell's a, a superstar in the making right before our eyes. So with these two guys, and you're paying them big, big, big-time money, that the success of this franchise is going to be determined by those other guys, by the Adebayus and the Heroes and the Drogics and Jay Cowder and whatnot, to use the Miami example. So it's what expertise that the the management of uh, Zanuck and Lindsay can come up with to flush out the roster with some serious quality players, say like three through seven or eight. Respond to that. Uh, it's an interesting thought. I mean, I do, I'd still probably, you know, I think it's a whole collective effort. So we're probably both, you know, what you, David presented and what you presented are probably both accurate. Um, 
you know, if Boston, I cannot figure out how Boston is not winning the series. I'm just totally mystified by it. I think Boston's so good and their roster's so loaded, but maybe it's that they're not deep enough one through eight. I have a hard time with that. I mean, I honestly, like, I just, you know, on last night they didn't win because they didn't play as hard as Miami. So, like, that one was simple. I mean, there's the offensive rebound. It turned out Tyler Hero throws away on the turnover and they don't get paid, punished for it. It's, to me, it's the symbolic play of the entire game. Um, but Miami just played, you know, the two, the three biggest plays of that entire series right now are defensive plays. Bam's block and the two steals by Jimmy Butler. And those were all eff- incredible effort, tenacity, reading the game correctly um, plays. So, um, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm answering your question. Miami might be your, you know, your argument of two through seven or, or two through eight or nine, you know, to get there. Um, cause I guess what I'm saying, but I think that they're really winning cause they're just playing harder and have incredible tenacity. I feel like Boston's top six is so much better than Miami's and really should be winning that series. I'm a bit stunned that they're not, um, Boston's just loaded. Um, but, um, and then this next, you know, in the Denver, the Denver, series with the Lakers would be interesting. Like as we go into it, who do you think has better players through eight and or nine in their roster on these two teams? Yeah, I would have said Denver, but the Laker bench has impressed me big time of late. Yeah. I mean, the, the question is whether you can count Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee in that list, I think, right. If it turns out like during the regular season, when JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard were on the floor, against Jokic, the Nuggets torched the Lakers. But on the flip side, when Anthony Davis played the five and Jokic played the five, the Lakers torched the Nuggets. So uh, I think the answer in this series is whether or not Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee are actually part of your one through eight. If if they're able to get 18 solid minutes out of their center position from either of those guys, then they they count, and then all of a sudden then their depth is okay. Um, But it's an interesting – it'll be interesting to see. So one other X factor in all of that, uh, I talked to Pace Mannion, uh, just randomly had a call with him, and he went straight to, in the bubble, without the fans and the craziness behind the glass, shooters, if you get if you just hit a couple shots, you can be locked in so quickly. It can be such a good environment for a shooter. And so that brings up the question, is Murray, Murray had the quietest 40 points. I mean, we were all amazed that the Clippers were blowing the 3-1 lead and then not competing in the second half of Game 7. But Jamal Murray went for 40. In another situation, we would have made a massive deal out of that. Is he going to go for 40 and be a huge X factor in this series? Well, he went for 20 in the second quarter, and I thought that won the game because watching the Clippers play in that series, what the Clippers wanted is was just to be so much better than you, it was easy for them. And they were up 11, and Jamal Murray went crazy in the second quarter, and all of a sudden they went to the locker room, and the Clippers realized it wasn't going to be easy. And I just don't think they had the fortitude to fight through that. I know it sounds crazy in a Game 7, but I'm not sure we've ever seen a team just fold the deck chairs in a Game 7 like that in the history of the game. Like I think it would be really hard to go back and find all the important – and I'm not talking about like when a one seed plays an eight seed, right? I'm talking about like a team that was supposed to be a championship-caliber team gets into Game 7. The only thing I could think of that was close was when LeBron's Cavaliers kind of folded against the Celtics and LeBron's in Cleveland, and, and he was just worn out, you know, and, and he kind of folded his deck tent in that game. But, I mean, I've not seen anything like what the Clippers did in the second half of that game where they just literally rolled over and died – 
in a game seven without fight. So to me, that second quarter by Jamal Murray when he had 20 was pretty loud, and it was the key to the entire game. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think um, I, I don't know how I don't know how they guard Jamal Murray and, and Jokic are the Stockton Malone right now of the unguardable two man game. I don't know how you guard it. Um, you know, I saw somebody talking about the key for the Jazz is to find a guard that can guard Jamal Murray. He just had a pick on the guard, and then he's not guarding him anymore. <laughs> so I, I'm not even sure that that's the answer. Um, I frankly think that the Jazz did a had some spans in there where they probably played about as well on Murray as they could. And he went and he went three for three in the mid range, and you know the the whole reason the Jazz lose the series if I think it's game. Five. There's two random loose balls that fly out to Murray for open threes, and he hits them both. I mean, give him credit. Like he just knocked them both down, and you know, one was off a Conley deflection, one was off a rebound, and those that was the difference in that game. It wasn't anything out of a defensive structure. So, you know, I don't know who the, what they're you know they're going to throw Contavious Caldwell Pope, and they'll throw Rajon Rondo, and they'll throw um, they'll miss Avery Bradley, um, they'll throw Alex Caruso, and Jamal Murray. But when Jokic sets the pick. Is Anthony Davis coming out and guarding him? Are they trapping him? And then if they trap him, then Jokic is conducting. Um, I, you know, I think a little bit to DJ to PK's point, like I think they're going to make Paul Millsap, Jeremy Grant, and Gary Harris make shots early in that series. And if they do, then it's then what we've seen is that Denver gets better and better and better offensively as the series goes on because Murray and Jokic just seem to have the answer to everything. When it comes to the draft, you like to do a lot of research and all that stuff, and I'm wondering how much of a crapshoot it's going to be without individual workouts and all the things that led the awesome. Jazz to Jazz Mitchell. And How do you think that's going to play out? Well, I think it's really interesting. So I was actually listening to uh, I was listening to the Locked on NFL podcast, and Tony Wiggins was talking about how he had been with a bunch of NFL area scouts recently and they were all talking about how the draft in the NFL last year because coronavirus hit pretty late and um some of the stuff that you know the combines and some of those things weren't done the same way that the GMs had to sit back and let the area scouts actually have their impact and that the first week of the NFL had more high level rookie performance even without training camp than kind of we've ever, than we've seen in a long time and their their assessment was self-servingly was like that the big guys in the top of the ivory uh, tower didn't screw up what the guys you know on the ground had seen and it was interesting because i now go back to another podcast i was listening to with john hollinger when john hollinger made the comment that if he could change anything in the draft process he'd get rid of draft workouts because as valuable as they might be they create a recency bias that is unavoidable and it is the last thing you've seen. There's nothing you can avoid to have it be the last thing you've seen. And it will have the most impact on you because it's the last thing you've seen. And that's just the human nature. And so that you bring a guy in for a draft workout and it suddenly, you know, takes away the seven months or 17 months of work that someone maybe had done on this player because it's your most everyone in the room saw it. It's the only person kind of everyone. So you, you put those two things together. I think this draft is going to be amazing. Um I've got some, you know, I think there's an interesting one on analytics. Like, I actually last year didn't watch any draft film, but did a bunch of analytical numbers on players and just decided to look and see. And Tyler Hero, like, peaked out on my, um, some of the analytics numbers for athletics and shooting and things of that nature. So I do think that maybe if some, if some team has a metric 
that is able to do analytics on draft prospects and be able to figure some things out, that's going to be incredibly valuable. Um, and then those that were ahead of the game, right? Those that have put the time in, that did the work, that were that were that weren't relying on the combines or the draft workouts or things like that, but have actually put in the effort. And that's that's a staff issue as much. GMs and assistant GMs are super busy during a year, and they, they don't have the capability, um, you know, in the NFL particularly, in the NBA as well. But, I mean, Dennis and Justin are pulled in a million different directions. And so, you know, they don't have the time to go to the University of Iowa practice or the University of Illinois practice the way the scout you should who should be doing that for you um, and going to the University of Kentucky practice and be able to see some of these guys or, you know, um, how well you scouted the Nike Hoop Summit two years ago or the McDonald's All-American or the ABCD game or some of those things are really going to matter. I think it's going to be great. I think this is going to show which organizations are on top of their game and which aren't. And I think you'll see, you know, we've seen it a lot recently, the Kawhi Leonard-Clay Thompson draft, which, um, you know, is the is the kind of best example of a completely inverted draft where 1 through 10 is not as good as 11 through 20. But I would guess that there'll be some real fines um, by those teams that are on it in this upcoming draft. And I think there'll also be um, more uh, to be a little um, uh, uh, cynical. I think there'll be more promises. I think you're going to see players get promised at 22 or 20 or things like that um, and maybe suddenly become a little less available for teams to look at. I'm not sure how they do that in this model, but there's going to be somebody who has someone they like and they don't want them out there. I saw a couple of takes on Twitter about Goran Dragic as he looks good in these playoffs and makes big plays. And, and you're, you're big into the analytics and all that, and I don't know if this stuff completely misses this or in a weird way if you could discover it with that. But they were talking about how Dragic is a gamer. He's a big gamer. He's a big gamer in international uh, tournaments, and he's a big gamer in the playoffs. And the people putting out this are like, he has a shockingly low percentage of bad games when it's kind of this winner-take-all. It doesn't show up as well in the regular season, maybe, but it really shows in tournaments, in knockout play, in NBA playoffs. Can you, dis- can you discover that kind of stuff, or you got to be the area scout on the ground and see guys to really realize that kind of talent? I mean, so he led Slovenia to the Euro Cup. With right, that was, the the that was slighted. That was slighted, yeah coach um, that had Luka on that team and Luka was tremendous but Dragic was the MVP of that series of that tournament um, and then if you go back and look even when he was 24 for Phoenix he was really good in the playoffs um, and then he's been great for Miami they've had limited experience but he's been great in every single one of his playoff performances um, he's just crafty um, and plays it I, you know I don't know I mean the easy Hey, the easy answer on some of these guys, and I think this is where we really missed Boyan, frankly. I don't think we missed Boyan's three-point shooting in the corner. It would have been pretty hard for our offense to be any better. But I do think there might be something to Jokic, Dragic, and Bogdanovic and the world they grew up in and what they experienced as young children and the fact that they're not quite as flustered by moments and have a level of toughness and and depth to because of life experience that's different than the average American kid. There might be something there. Um, I think it's a worthwhile discussion. Uh, if I was a scout in a room of what, whether there's something there, um, because you know, big games seem to bother them less. And I, you know, I think what Boyan brought us all year long was, it was a grit 
and uh, um, it's a quiet grit, but it's the you know it's the miss the second game of the year with the sprained ankle, and then the trainers come to him and he's like, "You got your one. I'm going to play. Like you know, I'm playing. Like I'm you know." And there's other stories that I probably can't share about it all year long, but the wrist is one of them, um, where that was going on all season long, and he just was going to fight through it. And you know, I think we missed that intangible aspect of Boyan Bogdanovich. And and if you want to, if you want me to say like we would have won beat Denver if we had Boyan, the answer to that to me is, yeah, but it wouldn't have been because we hit another corner three or we made another shot. I thought we did, you know, our offense was clicking at 130 for most of that playoff series. Hard to get any better than that. It would have been just because he has a, a grit level to him that is a little different than anybody else we have. So then the Jazz need more itches on their team then. Uh, you know, the, so far the, the teams with itches are – are scratching them well. Nice. Oh, maybe we should leave it right there. <laughs> maybe it was terrible. That was a it was setup. Ter- <laughs> it was terrible. Okay, one more thing then. All right. So oh, you don't have man. to end on that. I, enjoy, I, must tell, I must tell you, I enjoy these conversations immensely. Thank you very much. I sit out same, every Friday morning. I sit in the same spot. Screwed up this morning. My apologies. And uh, I really enjoy these conversations. You guys are terrific. Can the Nuggets upset the Lakers, or the favorite is the favorite for a reason, and the Lakers are going to the NBA Finals? Well, I mean, it sure feels like the Lakers are going to the NBA Finals. Um, the flaw the Lakers have is that they just are not a very good half-court offensive team, and they will go through this playoff run having not played a above-average defense. It's pretty nice. Um, you know, I thought they were really vulnerable. Um, I thought I took the Clippers because of this. Um, they're 19th in the league in half-court offense. If Anthony Davis does not get out and run, um, and they don't get, 20, you know, if they don't get somewhere about 15 to 18 to 20 percent of their possessions in transition, they they bog down really badly. Um, I don't know that I think Denver can prevent them from doing that. And frankly. You know, if Jokic has a weakness, it's probably he doesn't change uh, sides of the floor with great alacrity. And if Denver has a weakness, it's that they crash the offensive glass with such propensity that they are vulnerable to the transition game. So uh, I I think, you know, can the Lakers – there's two things here. Can the Lakers get enough possessions with Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee in the game so that Anthony Davis can be playing the four and out-sprint Denver's defense? He run, They play about 7% more of their possessions in transition if Davis is at the four than if he's at the five. Um, so I've always thought that the key for the Lakers was to get him – at the you know to get him out and running. Um, on the other end, in this series, he may be able to outrun Jokic well enough that if he can do it at the five as well. Um, so the, the mechanism by which Denver wins this series is makes it a half court game. They're a much better half court team. The Jokic Murray combination is better um, than anything the Lakers have, even with LeBron and, and AD. So that's the the way to get it done. But I, I I'd be surprised, and I do think. The Lakers' defensive length, which has just been awesome all season long, will have an impact on Denver. And I'll tell you who it is in a minute, but an, uh, an NBA media member from outside of this market has already guaranteed me the East is going to win the NBA Finals. Um, that's not... I, you know, um, guaranteed. Did not hedge. All right, so here's an interesting one. 
I feel like Denver matches up better against Miami and Boston than the Lakers do. But you don't think they're going to get there? I don't really think they're going to get there. So that's, yeah, so I'm kind of agreeing with that person. You know, Boston, Brad Stevens is a great coach. I'm not trying to minimize him this at all. They, they, I don't know if it's because of the zone. I don't know if it's because of the youth of the team. I don't know if it's just because this is a reality of playoffs and I don't get it. They lack an offensive creativity that is bothersome to me in key mom- in in games. And and even for you know they Brad has some of the best out of bounds plays and some other stuff and you know this is maybe an overrated version of coaching, but they don't like run some intricate stuff. You know I don't look at him as though he's like I think they're very well prepared and like I you know Jimmy Butler's got to get to his right hand and Daniel Tice comes out and closes and forces him to left hand and denies the drive like that's a subtle thing but that's brilliant preparation and coaching and then you know frankly Jason Tatum screwed it up. A possession later where he let him get to his right hand but the first one is kind of what there is great preparation that's great coaching so I'm not trying to criticize but I am underwhelmed by what they run offensively and um, what they run in as the game as the game goes on offensively so um, in that sense I'm not sure I think Boston could beat either the Lakers or the Nuggets yeah, PK and I were jointly horrified by the amount of uh, standing around and dribbling in the last three minutes of game one they yeah, were in a good spot, and all that you know, isolation it, stuff didn't make any sense to either one of us. Even if you watched them early, like I watched really closely last night, even early in the game or early in the second half, early in the second half was really bad. Now, that might have been because of the zone. Um, but it's not, like, it's just not, they don't, they're not, you know, there was the, there was the, audio cut of Brad telling the guys, great job, you're swinging it side to side and you're getting on both sides. Like, they don't do that a lot, actually. Like, it's interesting that they don't, you know, now we're used to watching the team that moves the ball an inordinate amount of time and plays advantage basketball. And maybe, you know, maybe if we had Boston's talent, which is, you know, just extreme. Um, I mean, I just think Boston's incredible. I just think they're so good. Um, I'm, I'm just flabbergasted that they're losing, but. Um, you know, the other one is, by the way, is I, I'll just leave this out there. I don't know anything. I don't have any insight on this one. This is just totally me watching. I cannot believe Jalen Brown is sticking around there. Like, he cannot be okay at this stage of his career, considering some of the nights he's had when he's been on his own, of just watching Kemba Walker and Jason Tatum take every shot and then Marcus Smart snaring a possession every now and then and becoming an offensive rebounding putback guy for the fourth quarter every night. That that cannot be okay with him. He's He is a third pick of the draft who thinks very highly of himself and wants more. I, I think he is the next Harden. It's just a major piece that gets moved out of because there's not enough possessions on that team. Mark it down. David, as always, we appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again. Talk to you soon. There's David Locke, the radio voice of the Jazz. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines. Stay with us.